but now it's kind of flipped on its head. So almost every single sport is investigating or really embracing analytics and now machine learning, AI, predictive analytics. So that's what excites me is that like it's embraced. You don't have to worry as much about the politics and it's more about what data can you get and how you can find value out of it. Kaplan, welcome to the show. Hey, Jake. So nice to uh, see you again. Great to be here. Likewise. It's great to be speaking today. We've had so many fun conversations since we met a, a little over a year ago, and, and I'm excited to, to chat on the record. You've been working in sports and in data for, well, uh, I'm sorry to say almost as long as I've been alive. And, and that's really exciting because you, you've seen it. You've seen it from the, the very start. So I want to I begin the conversation with asking, what are you most excited about in terms of trends and direction of AI ML in general and then in sports as it pertains to data? Great. Well, yeah, Jake, it was great uh, seeing you getting some uh, milkshakes together and uh, in, in Miami around the Formula One race, which kind of leads what I'm excited about. And, you know, to me, it's that I, I've, been, I've been in the analytics space for many decades and originally, you know, not many people were finding value out of it, but now it's kind of flipped on its head. So almost every single sport is investigating or really embracing analytics and now machine learning, AI, predictive analytics. So that's what excites me is that like it's embraced. You don't have to worry as much about the politics and it's more about what data can you get and how, how you can find value out of it. And so, yeah, so, so every sport, Formula One, super exciting. Miami was the best. NBA, NFL, uh, Major League Baseball, they're all embracing it. And there's so many use cases that you can have with structured and unstructured data. Trevor will be talking about that. But the use cases, the value, the new culture, that that's all exciting for me. Yeah, I love that answer. And what I'm hearing really is, is that it's just that everyone's embracing, the, you know, predictive and, and prescriptive approaches. We're still seeing a lot of man versus machine. I think the, the biggest advance over the last 20 years is that everyone's embraced working with data and everyone wants to be data-driven. And it's, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to hire people who specialize in it. It's another thing to, to truly embrace it. And, you know, not to single out a, a sport here, but I think we still see a lot of, like, shouldn't an NFL team go for it on fourth down? We say, well, did the coach's decision go with or against the model? And I always think, well, which model? And with what features, you know, and, and things like that. And so how do you see like the enterprise software world that, that you've been in for a while now and frankly, very mature verticals and industries and how they're handling this kind of thing versus where, where sports are at for all the good intentions and, and where sports needs to go? Yeah, so you see embracing and you see non-embracing in every single industry. I've worked with, you know, finance, insurance, healthcare, and a lot of times it's like we've always done this way for a hundred years, don't want to change. And in some ways, it all depends. Sometimes, yes, that's right. There are correct ways to operate on a heart, so to speak, or apply anesthesia. But you know, sometimes if there's data to show, you get a healthy conversation with the people that know the industry and the predictive analytics that might be able to recognize a pattern. And it's that kind of dance, that cooperation that leads to you know, understanding what should you make change or not. But yeah, so 
every single industry is being affected. Every single industry will grow, will get new use cases. And then sports, no different. You know, you mentioned the fourth downers. It reminds me of this great book, Big Data Baseball, about the Pittsburgh Pirates and the resistance of shifting physically your defense to anticipate where a ball might be hit. And I was part of that revolution where you would clearly show in some batters they would hit in a certain spot and you'd have an 80% chance the ball would be hit if it's on the ground to this spot, 20% to that spot. Why wouldn't you want that information? But you, it, it, there still was huge resistance. Even the manager, Clint Hurdle, bought into it and he was even instructing his players to shift and, and he got resistance, even though he's like the non-technical manager. But the teams that did saw great benefit. The teams that didn't just kept plotting away. When I started doing this with the Cubs in about 2010, only 3% of balls in play were shifted on. And now, last year, over half of all balls in play. So from 3% to over 50% in a decade shows it's worth it. So much now that they're implementing rules to limit the shifting. So that fourth down going for it is in that same situation where mathematically and probably on the field, it makes sense a lot of times, but there's that natural resistance to doing that. You know, until the AI robots take over the, the earth, humans will always be able to, to see and, and understand things that, that the machines can. So I think it's about working together and allowing, I mean, we, we all like to say it, it's harder to do it, but it's about having that objective data fueling, you know, subjective decision. We often talk about like people, processes, and technology in these dynamics. And I think we all agree that, that having people that are, are open-minded and forward-thinking is important. And, and that's a whole other topic. I'd love to talk about technology before processes. So having observed, you know, best-in-class enterprise software in this space and, and what, you know, big banks are doing, military manufacturing is doing, what is the modern tech stack for the data science lifecycle? And then, you know, how can sports organizations strive to get there? And what should they be including in the tech stack? Great question. And the tech stack, you know, kind of matures along with the organization. So sometimes you're just starting out, like what are some tools and people you can have in place to get your first like use case or, or not start collecting data. One of the big challenges to that is companies and, you know, every industry as well as sports is like, we don't have our data yet. We can't make any predictions or it's not very useful. So let's wait, no pun intended, for a year or two until we get better data and then figure out what we do with it. But I argue that you could start now with whatever limited data you have. And data science, it's almost like magic in that it will tell you of all the the limited data you have, is there any signal? Is there any predictive information? Most of the time there is, some of the time there's not. But data science will help you find that very quickly. And then you can say, wait, let me, I don't have signal. Let me add this data. Now I do have a little signal, but here's how accurate it is. Let me add more data. The data also could be very objective, like measuring how quickly someone runs across a field. Or it could be subjective. You could do analytics on scouting reports, the text they use, the uh, grades that they use on players. So people don't realize that sometimes this subjective information could be uh, made predictive. But in terms of tech stack, so that's the very beginning. You know, you could start with like the big three, which is like SQL, R, you know, Python, and then 
some uh, visualization tool like Tableau. Those are kind of like the big initial tranche. You start with MySQL since it's free, Python to start number crunching and slicing the data. And then, you know, once you get success, you become a medium organization. You have some data. You have to have some, you know, whether it's a cloud-based data, you start building what are called pipelines where you could scrape information from a website. You have something called an API where you have third-party uh, providers feeding data. And so that's the next step you grow. And then when you get that locked down, you can do that like hyperscale. You know, Formula One, the Miami, we bring it up since that's where we were. They have terabytes of data every race, 300 sensors measuring things a thousand times a second. You have video, which add many, many terabytes as well. You know, high definition of the tires spinning and what debris on it. Um, so that's when you start getting hyperscale. And there you really need like, a, you know, major, you know, lake house is the latest tech term. It's like a data warehouse with structured data and like unstructured things like streaming, analytics, video, images, sound, scouting reports. And there, you know, from the people perspective, you probably either want a partner that has all of that experience you could leverage or bring a few smart people in-house that know more and more what to do with that information. Um, and then, so that, that's kind of like the tech stack at the highest level. I think that's super helpful for a lot of the, you know, less technical listeners, because I know when I, when I started this, I mean, I'm a strength coach, you know, with doctoral work in, in biomechanics. And, and so for a lot of us learning these terms, it can seem kind of exclusive and kind of elitist, but it's really just, just what things are called. This is where the data sits. This is how the data moves. And this is how we get something out of the data. And I think, you know, it's interesting how the more I've learned about enterprise software in this space, observing that really the standard is to use a cloud to have a data lake house or, or a pipeline architecture, and then a clean funnel into an ML process and a way of, of using machine learning to, to get better answers and be more predictive and prescriptive. It's just kind of, it's, it's not the starting point, but it's, it's, it's a standard that everyone should be at, it feels like. I like how you brought yourself as an example, you know, strength coach. I don't know your programming skills, but you want to avoid getting scared. You know, you can just jump right in you know, th these are terminologies, you know, and at the end of the day, your experience, you know, with that strength, with the working with players is going to come in since what you want. And the more technical I've been in my life, the more I realize that it's not about showing off the tech skills. It's about just getting information into a way so that non-technical people, the players themselves, the coaches can get, you know, easy to understand information that is less trivia and more like you know helpful on how they can improve what are their strengths and weaknesses and habits what's changed lately you know things of that nature i think that's really well said and yeah one thing i know we were talking about offline is like this concept of doing things yourself versus off the shelf products and i'm always struck by certain perceptions is i totally understand it's human nature sometimes to see external technology is sometimes threatening to a job or, or to an IP creation, whereas others, it, it's the most natural thing in the world that there are obvious things to outsource when it's 
specialized and scalable, especially compared to human capital, especially in an industry where people change jobs very frequently. So, you know, knowing that that Gemini's mission is, and, and this is not a podcast about Gemini's product, but knowing that, you know, my company's mission is to create that off-the-shelf software that becomes an integral part of operations that teams already have. You know, if someone says, oh, we're already doing analytics, I think, awesome, then you're a great fit for us. What have you encountered in, in your travels working in tech when organizations um, just have that nature of we're going to try and build this ourselves, you know, versus, hey, w- you know, we know exactly what you're looking for and we've, we've built that for you already. So let us help and let us empower what you're already doing. So how have you viewed that philosophically uh, and as technology evolves? Yeah, I've seen both sides of the house, so to speak. So on the tech side, absolutely, I think you should, you know, buy versus build. So you have a choice, hire 30 people to write, you know, front end, like the website to write all these pipelines. And so this is almost the situation in Major League Baseball, which kind of started, you know, earlier than other sports. Each team has about, you know, 20, 30 software developers, programmers, and and different type of people like that, that are all basically building the same thing. So that's very inefficient. Um, There's no reason you could buy a product or a solution or a workflow that takes data from a game that everyone's getting and presents it, transforms it into some format. No reason to develop that on your own, really in any industry. On the other end, you know, there's you know proprietary information and insights and people. And what they have to realize is earlier on, maybe in their careers, they had a consulting company that came in and like, wow, baseball's cool. I'm going to talk to the GM and they end up like getting jobs and getting the fun part of it. But that that's not what's happening anymore. It's really, you have, you know, you buy or software or partner with a company that is more expert at something than you are, but you get elevated. You um, only have so many hours in the day. I'm talking when I say you, like the person at a team. So when I'm at a team, I wanted to get data and partner with people that enable me to stop doing this like repetitive, get the data. At first it was fun, but to me the more fun was talking with the general manager or working with the players or the coaches or trying to work with the vendors themselves to make their products better as opposed to me doing, I don't know if you want to call it grunt work since what you're doing is much better, but you know, doing the heavy lifting, doing the hard work that I have to hire a bunch of people for. I wanted somebody else to do it since I felt it would elevate me. Um, so it really, you know, you got people at organizations, some resist it since they think it's going to take away part of their job. And if the part of the job is the boring repetitive part, then yes, it will take that away. But if they look at themselves as they want to like be the more complex, critical problem solver, thinker, communicator, then you really should buy versus build on your own. It's all about, can you can you do things that you couldn't do previously or can you do things that you're already doing much faster and more efficiently? And if a, a technology can help you do that, it's worth it. I'd be crazy to not talk to the AI cloud and auto ML man himself about the topic. One thing I found to be a learning curve in building and explaining this product is, you know, Gemini is that not everybody knows about AI cloud and auto ML. Not everybody is aware of this concept of, of 
operationalizing many machine learning models really at once and moving away from this concept of being fixated on one model at a time and wrestling that model into the best performance possible as opposed to just cycling through what is out there until you find what's going to work for you. So talk us through this technology and how you've seen it be adopted by industries that just didn't know about it and then how you've seen it be adopted by industries that had a lot of data scientists and watch watch those data scientists transition between that more manual way of doing things into this new way. Great topic. Just for the audience, when you say model, that's like a data science term where you can take information and make something predictive. So the last like couple decades has been prescriptive or what you call business intelligence. You have some sales that have happened in the past and you can do a report of which regions had the most sales. And where AI and ML is kind of adding on to it, it's generally more predictive. You could say what might happen in the future based on what happened in the past. So how might a player perform based on what you know at this very moment? How will they do the rest of the season? How might they do next year, five years from now? And then that derives like, are they better than the players you have? How much money should you pay? So that's predictive analytics that AI and ML is good for. And the other is uh, classification, which is like, what type of injury is this? Or you throw a pitch and it has a certain spin and movement. Is that a fastball, a curveball? Or if you're dealing with your season ticket holders or your fan base, is um, you know one person a college student, therefore they're you know, want the cheap seats or are they like a Wall Street investor that's probably going to buy suites and get 10 people in. So that's segmentation. How do you classify people? And then the whole auto ML concept is really cool. It sounds like magic, but in the past you needed a PhD practically in data science, years of experience to write these models, write the code to take data and make predictions on it. But now it's basically AutoML, a company like Data Robot, where I've worked the, the past like three and a half years, where you can automate the repetitive parts of that process. And you don't even need to be a data scientist. You don't even need to program at all. And you can make predictive analytics. That's called the democratization or part of AutoML. And that, if you haven't been a data scientist, you may not appreciate how incredible that is. It's almost like magic. Again, you can not program and make predictive analytics you know, as good as traditional data scientists in many, many cases. So that's changing the world. You know, There are 30 times as many non-technical business analysts as there are data scientists at a company. So that's opening up about 30 times as many people to this whole industry. That's why it's super exciting and that's kind of on the forefront. At the same time, it elevates your existing data scientists to do more complex problems or spent, focus their time on collecting more data, which in the end is going to help the athlete or the team on the business side and on the sports side as well. Yeah, I'm so glad you touched on that at the end because I think that's one of the hardest things to communicate sometimes is nobody's here to replace data scientists. They're extremely important. We're just arming them with a tool to be you know, wildly more productive. And, and ultimately, like it should be seen as a good thing if non-data scientists are able to work with the data. You're expanding the user base. You're expanding how many people can be involved in decisions. You're expanding the conversation and the comfort with such topics. Um, so, you know, do you want to make sure that you avoid anybody running over to the data science department and say, you know, hey, I, I figured out that tall people are good at basketball, right? right? Of course, 
And, that, and that's why they're training wheels in some of these processes. Yeah, that's a good example. And you, so you need the people who understand the data and the industry. You know, like, yeah, tall people are better at basketball. You see this correlation. Um, I love that example. Uh, hadn't heard that one. Um, but yeah, and then, like another example is, uh, you know, I early on had somebody recommend, uh, you know, a general manager sign a player. And it turns out that that player was out for the season on the disabled list. And that since the data they were using didn't include uh, injury. So while based on their data, it was correct, you know, you don't want to make that recommendation. It's an easy fix. You add injury information into it, but still that, that, you know, both, both of those are good examples of why you want um, to match up people who are able to collect information, uh, people who are able to organize the information uh, and make predictive models, and then the people that uh, understand the business so they can make sure the right contacts, the right uh, data is being put in. And you just keep growing and growing and collaborating uh, all together. I want to double click on, on a topic that you, you mentioned where some orgs think that they might not be ready for this kind of thing. And they say, wow, that's, that's exciting in advance, but we've got to walk before we can run. I keep saying the term enterprise software, but really, really, how does technology allow teams to, if not skip a few steps, do a few steps quickly where, you know, I think some of this tech can be so intimidating. And if you go on Twitter, you'd think that AI is only like really advanced art or voice recognition and image recognition, which is incredibly exciting, obviously, but you know, scaling it all the way back and maybe using a few more examples of predictive type questions that can be answered by teams, you know, how do you see the barrier of entry being lowered by modern software? So let's just say you're a new team, you're a team, you come into existence, you don't have anything, you know, you have a choice. You can hire, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 people to write all the software, uh, probably take you a, a couple years but you might get something decent after the first year. You know, so that's one barrier is time, you know, time to start getting insights. Also the time to hire and the uh, ability to filter through all the resumes. Like there's Teamwork Online, which is a website that hosts a majority of job openings. But if you don't know what, like how to interview tech people, you're going to get hundreds of resumes they're all going to have the words Python, R, and MySQL on it. You won't know how to interview them. You're going to hire people. Some might be good, some might not be. It, it, it's going to take you a year or two or three to really get things uh, you know, from nothing to getting started. So you, you, know, you ideally want to get like one or two people in-house to kind of oversee the whole process, but then you know, jumpstart that you know, with outside help, you know, people who either have prepackaged solutions or have technology that can help get you up and running. There's technology on the data side, on the software side, on the member crunching AI side, on the visualization side, and then the people who source data for you, like people who could help you, for example, take a video uh, of somebody throwing a baseball and breaking down the dots of where their head and hands and eyes are those are things that you're going to want to do. Why hire people and, and build that when it's already been done before? But you still yeah. probably would want at least one or two people in-house to kind of oversee and pick from different vendors and, and synthesize it all together. Yeah, I think you can have even more users than that. I think it's it's where where the energy and resources are going that, that's important and that can be optimized through through that kind of stuff. 
winding down here, I'd love to just hear what are what are three types of questions that you think all sports teams can be asking with this kind of technology that excites you the most? The three categories are like the fan-based, you know, how can I better reach my fans? Uh, so it's kind of marketing or you know, season ticket, the business side, how do you price tickets? Then you have what, what you call like above the field or above the court, what players are going to perform in the future and economically, you know, is this player worth 5 million or 10 million or 20 million a year? And what excites me the most on the field or on the court, how can you work with the players and coaches themselves to find, uh, you know, uh, ways that they can improve? You could see the weaknesses in your opponent. You could see the strengths in yourself. How do you do the matchups? And to me, that's historically been the most fun, you know, working with Formula One race drivers, uh, with NBA players, with um, baseball players themselves. You know, I'm, 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 you know, almost the flip of you. I am the less athletic-minded uh, person and the more technical person. That that's my background. But it's been super exciting to be able to show insights to to players or race car drivers to help them improve. Um, so for me, that that's personally the most exciting. That's a great list, and you know, each of those that you mentioned, I, I think to myself, those are those are answers that people need pretty fast, and so. Anything that can speed that up is is always going to be useful. Absolutely, and at the end of the day, you get um, you know players and coaches seeing that uh, you know not all the information is helpful all the right all the time, but in the right context, you know the World Cup is uh, you know happening this month. You know it could help them you know make one better pass, get one better opportunity, um, and they want that type of information again and again and again. And yeah. I love providing that. Well, last question for you. World Cup, one favorite and one dark horse. The biggest upset in the history of the World Cup statistically was Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I don't think they're going to win it all, but same thing with March Madness. There's never really a perfect bracket. It's, you know, even if the team is like 60, 40 odds, you know, with so many games, it's not going to be perfect. But I don't know, Brazil, heavy favorites. I personally, think uh, England has been long-suffering, so yeah. I don't expect them to win, but I'm, I'm kind of pulling for them. Also, I had the chance to work with Man City and Man U in the past, so I kind of root for some of the, the players there, but you know, Americans, so root for America. So it, it, it'll be super exciting. I, I wish it was more than every four years, but that that's yeah. probably what makes it so exciting is that it's like your chance, and then you have to wait an extremely long time. Yeah. I agree. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad we both picked Brazil. I hope we're right. Yeah. All right, Kathleen, thank you so much for your time. Jay, great to see you again. Thanks uh, to you and thanks for everyone who's listening. <laughs>